This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us for brand new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to get regular updates to your podcast feed. Now, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we like to delve a little deeper into what life was really like at English Heritage sites. And today we're doing exactly that as we take a look at what went on behind the scenes at England's medieval monasteries. When you visit the ruins of abbeys and priories, it can be hard to imagine that these places were once teeming with people, and not just monks and nuns. An army of workers also helped to keep them running smoothly. Joining us now to discuss the role of these servants in monastic life is senior properties historian Dr Michael Carter. There's quite a lot to reveal about these monastic servants, isn't there, Michael? As you say, medieval monasteries from the time of the Anglo-Saxons right through to the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII couldn't have functioned without servants. And to some extent, they're an invisible presence at our monasteries today. And I'm going to try and fill in some of those blanks talking to you in this podcast. Well, let's try to bring them to the forefront then, Michael. So we're discussing the importance of these servants to medieval monasteries. Can you just start by defining what do we mean by a servant? Yeah, it's a really broad definition. It goes right across the ranges and the whole spectrum of social roles and social status in the Middle Ages. They were graded according to the roles they performed within a monastery. So I'm very much going to talk now about the late Middle Ages, for which we have most of the evidence. So in the 14th to the 16th century, there are essentially three grades of servant. You have gentlemen and esquires. And if that sounds exalted, it's because they are quite posh. They're professionals. They're priests who are employed by monasteries to sing commemorative masses or conduct other spiritual services. There are schoolmasters. There are professional singing men who help out with the liturgy and train the choristers in polyphony and even play the organ. And you have people who handle the monastery's legal affairs, their accounting. Then you've got another grade of servants underneath that who are called valets. And they're sort of semi-professionals. They may well be craftsmen, the glaziers of the monastery, the stonemasons. But then Supporting all that, there is a whole other establishment of servants, and they're hired day labourers. And we have freelance enterprises set up within monasteries. It's a great case study for you know the capitalist economy in the Middle Ages, monastic servants and the establishments are set up. So there's a huge range of roles, and it's a very, very pliable term covering a whole spectrum of social statuses, But all of them, I think I need to say here, are essential for the running of monasteries. They're easily forgotten, I suppose, by history. Do you think their contribution is talked about enough in the history books? I have to say no. And when I was preparing for this podcast, it's been a subject that I've been interested in for several years. When I was preparing for this podcast, I realised how slight and to an extent how old a lot of the literature on them is. Now, there are some brilliant chapters in books such as 
David Knowles's Religious Orders in Medieval England, published in the aftermath of World War II into the 1950s. Barbara Harvey's Living and Dying in England, the monastic experience, is a very, very good chapter on servants. And more recently, Martin Heal's Monasticism in Late Medieval England has a very, very interesting chapter on servants with supporting translated original documents. But there's no systematic study. And I've worked as well, oh gosh, many, many monastic interpretations since joining English Heritage eight years ago. And we don't have a single dedicated site panel or section of an interpretation or a museum handed over to servants. So I don't think they've been given enough attention. And there is a mass of evidence, if you know where to look, showing just how integral they were to the function of monasteries at every single level. Okay, we'll talk about some of the clues that they left behind a bit later on, but let's give a brief overview of the monastic hierarchy, what the pyramid, I suppose, is made up of. Can you tell us what it looked like from the top down? Do we have the abbot and the prior, these sorts of figures, first? You have always have a head of house, and that's you know, the abbot, the prior, the abbess, the prioress. And then you will have, if you do have an abbot or an abbess, you'll have below that, you'll have a prior or a prioress who are essentially in charge of discipline. And you'll have sub-priors, sub-prioresses, a whole range of senior monks or nuns called obedientries who are in charge of things like provisions, the sacristy, the provision of clothing for the monks. And they have titles such as salarer, sacris, chamberlain. Sometimes they'll have assistants. And there's a whole hierarchy then amongst the monks and nuns themselves that you uh, your status within a monastery to some extent is determined by how long you have been there. And uh, your stall in the choir and the chapter, even the refectory, the seat in the refectory, moves up one as people die off and your longevity there increases and the status due to the skills you might bring. But then there's a whole hierarchy amongst the servants as well. Now, the very pinnacle of lay people involved with monasteries is the external patron, the descendant of the founder. And then especially important in the later Middle Ages is the monastic steward who oversees the external relationships of monasteries with the outside world. And these are very lucrative positions and they are much sought after and you find some of the highest in the land appointed to monastic stewardships in the 15th and early 16th century and the Earl of Derby even besieges Furness Abbey in the early 16th century because he's been double-crossed to the appointment of the stewardship of that monastery which he thinks is his by right. But in a more kind of administrative role, actually doing serious work on behalf of monasteries, you have sort of the gentleman servants, the gentlemen of the abbot's chamber, the chaplains, the master of the choristers, the legal officials. And then, as I said, you've got the professionals, semi-professionals, the craftsmen who are doing essential tasks. Um, as the title for this podcast um, suggested, you've got cobblers, candlestick makers, tailors. Every single role you can think of are employed as monastic servants. You know, some brilliant evidence from Sawley Abbey. It's one of our free sites on the Yorkshire-Lancashire border. But just around the time of the dissolution of the monasteries, it describes a whole range of servants they employ. Now, that's a very, very small monastery. But boy, they've got servants doing just about everything. Then you've got the people doing the more routine day-to-day tasks. Um, 
I do wonder if some of my ancestors might have been monastic servants, thinking of my surname Carter, fetching and carrying kinds of roles. And then there's brilliant evidence in the account books of Battle Abbey describing how they hire boys during the ploughing season and after sowing to throw stones at crows in the field. So there's a whole supporting structure of hired day labourers as well. It really does encompass the whole social hierarchy of medieval England. So really what you've been describing there, Michael, is it's a mini society within general society, isn't it? It's a good way of putting it. It's a medieval society in microcosm. If we wind back the clock to the early days of Christianity in England, have monasteries always had these types of monastic servants or was it a bit more basic in the early days? Well, I decided to go back to basics and read through the foundational documents of monastic life in the medieval West and specifically in here in England. So I read through the rule of St. Benedict and then the rule of St. Augustine. They're the two main monastic rules covering every aspect of life within monasteries. And interestingly, neither of them mention servants once. But then we get into Anglo-Saxon England and a story that struck me that leapt out immediately is the story of Cademan, the cowhand uh, Whitby Abbey at the time of St. Hild in the middle of the 7th century, who discovers a miraculous gift of song, which is used to spread the Christian message. And he becomes venerated at Whitby as a saint. And gosh, doesn't that tell you something? He's a cowhand. He's a hired hand. He's a servant of the monastery. And it's showing that even then, these days of the Anglo-Saxon mission, there were servants. And then there are two very important 10th and 11th century documents about English monasticism, the Concordis Regularis and the monastic constitutions of Lanfranc. And servants crop up regularly within those. And they're concerned with most aspects of life within monasteries, especially how the monks and nuns should behave, and especially the liturgical functions of monasteries. And it becomes very apparent in those that servants are playing a key role, even in how monks are celebrating the liturgy, the divine office throughout the year that is so central to their way of life. You've talked about some of the roles that um, monastic servants have had. Which are the best jobs, would you say? All jobs within monasteries, I have to be said, are probably considered a good job because they provide you with so much. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that later. But, you know, in terms of social status, I think if you're a handling a monastery's legal affairs, that can be very, very lucrative. And you've got a lot of status from that as well. I've been a chaplain employed by a monastery, being a master of choristers, being the organist. Now, they're quite lucrative jobs. They've got a good stipend associated with them. And you also have social and religious status. But even being the boy, being hired to throw stones at crows, that's giving you some ready income as well. You know, it depends on your social status, where you are in society. They're a ready source of employment and they are good employers as well on the whole monasteries. What we've described as your terms and conditions at monasteries can be very good indeed. Mm, Okay, so I want to pick apart these T's and C's. What are the perks then? You've talked about quite a good 
pay for certain roles. What about food, lodgings, this sort of thing? Yeah, they all come in. But I would say, and when we're talking about monasteries, we always have to have belief and religion at the forefront. As well as thinking about this world, it's the world to come. And monastic servants from a very, very early times have the right to burial within the monastic cemetery. And that was thought to confer certain spiritual privileges, that you get more prayers said for the salvation of your soul, so the time you spend in purgatory will be shorter. That cannot be discounted or underestimated as a motive why people wanted to be monastic servants. And you can also attend services in monastic churches. You can't go into the choir or even in Cistercian churches into the main nave, the place of the lay brothers. But just within the door of a monastic church, you'd be able to hear the liturgy being chanted, being aware of this heaven on earth. And then, as you said, there are more obvious day-to-day advantages as well. And the pay can be very good indeed. So a groom at a monastery, a large monastery such as Westminster Abbey, for instance, which we've got very good statistics towards the end of the Middle Ages, will be paid something like £1, six shillings a year. Now that doesn't sound an awful lot to us, but it's not a bad living and not a bad cash income in the Middle Ages. And, you know, one of the sort of hired hands might just get six shillings, but on top of all this comes, for more senior servants, you get a livery. That means you're given clothing, and it will often be of a certain kind with the abbey's crest on the sleeve. You know, So you've shown that you're a retainer, or you're part of the establishment of a quite a, a powerful institution, and you get decent food. You are guaranteed, more or less, that you're belly will always be full. And that isn't something that would have been the case for an awful lot of people in the Middle Ages. You know, it's a role to aspire to being a monastic servant. Then you, for a lot of roles, you will also get board and lodging. Then you get special privileges like Christmas presents, Easter presents, the right to dine in the monastic great hall on certain days of the year as well. You've also got people behind you. It's a kind of like, you know, you're, as I said, you, you're part of a great establishment. Being in the pay of somebody important or being part of the retinue of somebody important in the Middle Ages, as well as you providing hired hand and at times hired muscle for that individual, they, will all, they can also be called upon to stand by you if that's needed. There's these mutual ties of deference and responsibility a vertically integrated deference society is the nerd term for it. But I do think it describes it quite well and gives a sense that, you know, there are advantages even to being in a servile role. With the final payoff, of course, being eternal salvation, prayers for the soul and hopefully a place in heaven. Absolutely, yeah. I can really see why people would be interested. Let's talk about the worst parts then of being a monastic servant who's right at the bottom of the of the scale in terms of security and status it's the subcontractors it's the people who are the day hired hands and you know the worst jobs is always a job you don't like isn't it you can to some extent have a quite a well-paid and high status job and if you don't like it if you're not suited to it it can feel like a terrible job But I do wonder what it must have been like being the hired hands at Battle Abbey 
who are paid to muck out the latrines throughout the year. Uh, it doesn't have a, a reliable water supply at Battle Abbey, so the monastic latrines have to be cleared out by hand. And that's because of the monastery being founded on top of a hill, the very spot where William the Conqueror secures his great victory. You know, ready pay, I guess. And it's not too bad. I think there was it was sixpence a day for mucking out battles latrines, but it must have been an unpleasant, smelly job. Would they would they have had to have leather gloves for all this? Because you you talk about it taking place by hand. What a fascinating question. What did that exactly involve? The material that was being cleared out would actually have been quite a valuable commodity. It's ready fertilizer. It's night soil to spread on the monastery's crops or even to sell. So it's an unpleasant thing to talk about, but it had an important function of the monastery that the latrines are working properly. Another really fascinating subject is monastic latrines. I think there's a there's a PhD in the architecture and allegorization of monastic latrines. We, we could do that on another occasion, perhaps. But it's a ready income, and then the byproducts can be used for the economic benefit of a monastery as well. Yes, I suppose um, any um, water waste, shall we say, can be used in a tannery for leather, can't it? Some of this we explored at uh, Revo Abbey. So if you'd like to go back and listen to our water-themed podcast episode about Revo Abbey and how they manage the water there, then you can do so. Now, we've described so far, Michael, some of the varied roles, which ones were the best, which ones were the worst, how people were able to make money and also guarantee their place in heaven. But were there any specific rules that a monastic servant would have to follow in order to comply with life at a monastery? They're not bound by the rule of St Benedict or the rule of St Augustine. They apply just to the monks and nuns. But they are expected to behave in certain ways. The, For instance, those monastic constitutions that I mentioned they specify the roles that the servants are supposed to take, assume on certain feast days, for instance, and helping out the monks and nuns perform the liturgy and certain ceremonies. But more generally, yes, there certainly are, and they reflect the rigid social hierarchies of medieval society. It's speak when you're spoken to kind of thing, unless your role is of such a status that allows you to initiate a conversation with your social betters. And in all monasteries, the monks and nuns would have been considered superior in status to even the gentleman employees, the higher ranking monastic servants as well. And then it's importance of decorum, just the minutiae of rules and regulations, some of them which you just imbibe because they permeate the society. Is extraordinary about how you are meant to deport yourself. And it comes up in monastic visitation records. These are the kinds of, uh, to use a modern analogy, Ofsted inspections from hell when a local bishop or for some monasteries, neighbouring abbot or prior comes in to expect conduct within a monastery. And the fact that servants are getting beyond themselves or are not conducting themselves with due decorum does get raised and an abbot prior or the female equivalents are expected to stamp down on this. Know your place and know your roles and know your responsibilities. And the hierarchies go right from the top right to the bottom. 
what hasn't survived are uh, to any great extent uh, that they would probably have been written rules of customs governing the relationships between the servants and the monastic establishment and as far as i'm aware i'll probably find one the minute i finish doing this recording by the way those kinds of documents haven't really survived or i need to dig deeper to find one they would provide fascinating insights you mentioned earlier on lay brothers can you remind us what a lay brother did and was we have lay brothers and lay sisters within monasteries. So lay brothers uh, at male monasteries, lay sisters at female monasteries. They are under religious vows, not the full vows of a monk or nun. They tend to be illiterate. But remember, literacy in the Middle Ages is certainly in the early part of the Middle Ages until the 12th century is something which is doesn't go that far across the spectrum. It's mainly people who need a specific purpose to be literate. That is clerics. So it's people who are in holy orders of some kind are literate. So you get high-ranking people, uh, knights, for instance, who are completely illiterate. Um, so but you have to be literate to be able to sing the monastic offices, to understand, to read the rule that governs life within a monastery. So you get a whole spectrum of social statuses as lay brothers and especially as lay brothers rather than lay sisters. They can do often do the heavy lifting in monasteries. They, to an extent, servile roles that you know they can be expected to do a lot of the farming, work on farms, but they also are often quite skilled. We know of lay brothers especially who are glaziers, who are master masons, and some monasteries entrust their relationships with the outside world to lay brothers because they've got experience in this field. So they are part of the community. They're part of the religious community, but they're not singing the eight services that punctuate the monastic day. And they're taking on more routine tasks to an extent and also ensuring that there are people within monasteries who are part of the religious establishment who can, can interact with the outside world. Now, lay brothers and sisters have ceased to be part of uh, monastic communities in Britain by the middle of the 14th century. There were various reasons for that, and we could have a whole podcast on lay brothers and sisters, to be perfectly honest. It's such an enormous subject. And to some extent, a lot of their roles are taken on by hired hands or by tenants. I see. We'll hopefully be able to do that in a future podcast. You've mentioned the lay sisters, and obviously there are nuns in in the female monasteries. Did women work as monastic servants as well? There must have been a few around to do certain roles. Absolutely, yeah, they did. And that's in both male religious houses and female religious houses. And I'll talk about roles which are common between the two. Monastic laundresses. Actually, I just gendered the role already, didn't I? The people who do the laundry in monasteries are always women, the laundresses. And it's an essential role, and all monasteries employ laundresses. And there is a brilliant anecdote from Westminster Abbey that the day the novices at Westminster Abbey changed their linen, they only did that four times a year and would have a bath, the laundresses had to be paid a bonus to come in that day because it was acknowledged that the task ahead of them was so unpleasant. Another role that women routinely take on at monasteries is in the dairy. The dairy maids and also sometimes the head of the dairy. And there's a brilliant example at Sipton Abbey in Suffolk, 
1507, the management of the dairy there was placed under a woman called Catherine Dow. She gets an annual salary of £1 a year. But gosh, is she talented. She doubles the number of cows in the dairy. She doubles production of cheese and other dairy produce. And she sets up a very, very, very successful enterprise within the dairy of the monastery. She's a real entrepreneur. Now, at female monasteries, women would occupy both of those roles as well. But on the whole, most of the servants at female monasteries are also men. Did these monastic servants live and work on site or live nearby and travel to work? Both. You definitely have uh, lodgings for servants in the outer courts of the monastery. And actually, you might be surprised to learn sometimes within the monastic church itself that the sacrist of monasteries employed quite a, an establishment of servants who they slept in the church to watch the shrine, to make sure people weren't purloining the silver and other sacred ve- of the sacred vessels stored in the sacristy, to ring bells. Uh, the, the various rooms which historians and architectural historians have long mused over how they were used, which may well have been the accommodation for these servants living within the church. Uh, sometimes they have little fireplaces within them to stay warm or, or little garderobes, latrines, so where they could ease themselves through the hours they were spending in the church. Then you have ones who don't live on site who live in nearby villages and towns and kind of walk to work every day, they would often sometimes be given what's called a corridy. That's a special allowance of bread and ale from the monastery every day as part of their employment terms and conditions. And sometimes things like a gallon of ale a day, and that's weak. It's what's called small beer, has a very low alcohol content, but it's still quite a lot. And it will specify the number of loaves they can be given each day and the grade of the loaf as well. And the more senior servants would be given what's called the conventual loaf, which is the loaf that's being given to the monks or nuns, and that's made from a higher grade wheat. We've already talked about pay, but could you give us a spread of the types of salaries that would have been handed out across the hierarchy? Again, the figures aren't going to sound very high to us, but you know we have to think of these in, in late medieval terms. And a chaplain within a monastery might get between five or ten pounds a year, which is an awful lot of money. You can live quite comfortably on that. And someone like um, the master of the choristers, the singing man, a pound or two a year, not too bad, uh, especially when it's support. You're given a free place to live. You've got a livery. You've got your bread and ale. You've got special treats as well through certain at certain times of the year. Some people, it is. It's just a matter of shillings on the, or a casual wage. It's when you're hired when you need it. Sometimes it can be as little as a penny a day. And the, I think the boys throwing stones at the crows in the fields of battle. I might be given an halfpenny or even a farthing a day, but you could survive for a day on that in terms of bread and ale. We've covered some of the aspects of manual work that monastic servants might be involved in, and also some of the lay brothers might be involved in, from farming to craftsmanship. Did some of these monks and nuns ever do the manual work? The servants definitely, but also you might be surprised to learn that monks and nuns did until quite late in the Middle Ages as well. Now, the rule of St. Benedict envisaged that monks and then 
nuns following the rule as well would divide their day into three basic kinds of periods set aside for communal prayer, sacred reading, but also manual work. It's because of it's to deal with the idleness is the enemy of the soul. And it was thought to be good for you doing some work. And that could involve manual work. We know of even of nuns having to go out into the fields and work at harvest time. Now, bearing in mind that most medieval nuns came from quite high-status families, the gentry or yeomans and sometimes aristocratic families, these poor nunneries, these nuns having to go out work in the fields, it, it would have been a shock to them, I think, having to do this back-breaking manual work. And the monks of Cleve Abbey, English heritage site in Somerset, brilliant monastery, lots of roof spaces survive. Around the time of the dissolution, there's a description of them wearing out pairs of gloves, clearing the bracken that was choking the monastic land. So they were still having to go out and work in the fields. But on the whole, by the late Middle Ages especially, monks and nuns have become quite sedentary. And manual work has become very, very loosely interpreted to cover, well, anything that it's a bit of a cliche but it nevertheless has truth in it that nuns were employed within monasteries to do embroidery and needlework and some of the work was very very highly esteemed for monks the manual work might be copying manuscripts and then the manual labor side of time especially in male monasteries is sometimes sacrificed for the singing of extra commemorative masses a longer liturgy or the sacred reading in the cloister that form part of the monastic day. We can't mention, of course, the work of monks and nuns and monastic servants and anyone at a monastery without talking about the dissolution of the monasteries. We did this podcast a while ago, obviously, about them. Can you just remind listeners what the key dates are in the history textbooks of the dissolution? Well, it starts in 1536 with the suppression of the smaller or the lesser houses. And it's a key stage of Henry VIII's Reformation, his break with Rome. And by 1540, every single religious house in England and Wales, we're talking about 840 or so, has ceased to exist, has been suppressed. Why were the monasteries dissolved? Just take us back to some of the earlier origins. You talk about Henry VIII's break from Rome, but that has origins in his first marriage, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the sexual politics and quest for an heir of Henry VIII. But gosh, the dissolution of the monasteries, why? Why were they suppressed? Well, it is a question that exercises historians almost 500 years after the event. And various reasons have been put forward. For instance, it's been suggested that, and with quite good evidence, that Henry may well initially have anticipated the survival of a kind of reformed monastery, a smaller number, a leaner, fitter kind of monastic estate. Some historians, I've got no time for that at all, and think that he and Thomas Cromwell had it in for them and that their motives were far from being spiritual, but very, very worldly and financial. And gosh, the debates will rage. But what is very interesting is that criticism of monastic servants comes up at this time and is used as a justification for an attack on the monasteries. That by the end of the Middle Ages, servants outnumber monks and nuns at most monasteries on a ratio of two to three to one. There are huge numbers of people on the payroll of monasteries. 
And some of the literature on this is, could almost be politicians today trying to curry votes by talking about shirkers and strivers, for instance. And monastic servants are portrayed as being idle, good-for-nothings, living off the fat of the monasteries, called abbey lubbers. And they are used as an excuse, or they become very, very closely involved in justifications for the suppression of the monasteries between 1536 and 1540. Almost like what we might term quiet quitters. (laughs) <laughs> Those people who just sort of turn up and just sort of hang around in the background and, you know, that sort of thing. Well, it, it's, it's more pejorative than that, actually. And it's more like, it's almost like, you know, an analogy might be looking at a nationalised industry and it's like, oh, got all these people employed and they would never be doing this in the private sector. Let's get rid of them all because it's like so inefficient and what a waste of time uh, kind of thing. Well, you know, there's a, always a counter-argument, isn't there? And that the monastic establishment of servants, well, it was providing money and status to a very, very large number of people. They spent that money in their local environments. That it was key to the economy of the locality that these people, as I said, had status from being monastic servants. And it was, to some extent, a route to social nobility as well. I've talked about the successful small businesswoman at uh, and that's replicated across the country. And we know of the offspring of monastic servants who get educated in the free grammar and song schools of monasteries and climb up the social hierarchy of late medieval and Tudor England. And there weren't that many opportunities for social mobility in late medieval and Tudor England and monastic schools provided them and people who had the right to be educated free for them were the offspring of monastic servants. So we have instances of the children of monastic servants becoming monks and nuns themselves or clerics and going to the very, very, very top of those establishments, becoming abbots and priors. But it's the children of monastic servants who sometimes have an opportunity for enormous social mobility. When the monasteries were finally dissolved then, this must have come as a terrible shock to monastic servants, not just amongst nuns, obviously, but um, those people who were the grease of the monasteries, really. Again, it's one of the subjects which hasn't been thoroughly investigated, partly because the evidence is hard to find. Now, there is a concern around the time of the dissolution that, gosh, these vast numbers of people are about to be made unemployed. And is this going to be a source of resentment and opposition to what is happening with the suppression of the monasteries? Well, what tends to happen to the servants is their wages are paid up to date and they're often paid, gosh, months and months and months in arrears, servants. And it's because they're getting the basics of life provided in other ways. So that can happen. And they'll get a small cash reward to go quietly as well, a kind of redundancy payment. But what are you going to do with yourself? Well, some of them find employment with the new owners of monastic sites. Some of them will have gone with the abbot or prior prioress who retires to a local manor house with a nice pension and will need servants. So too will the monks who become chantry priests and five or ten pounds a year, you can probably employ one or two servants on that. And then we also get cases of servants who do quite well out of the dissolution. The skills that they have acquired, 
the small business that they've set up can survive the suppression and they're able to buy some monastic property. And Catherine Dow is a classic example. The dairy business that she sets up prospers after the dissolution and it grows even more under her son. It's a really fascinating aspect to medieval monasteries that, of course, we can visit as part of the English heritage portfolio. So for people who do want to walk in the footsteps of these until now in sort of invisible monastic servants, which English heritage sites could they go to? Every single one you will be following in the footsteps of a servant. And even in places, I said, which you wouldn't really expect them, such as the churches, that there would have been servants milling around those churches, performing essential roles. There are a few buildings in our estate which we can say, yep, servants would definitely have been there and would have been dominating that space as well. I think about the tannery at Revo Abbey. Talking about worst jobs in history, I don't think I'd have fancied being a tanner, I have to be honest. Just to the south of the main complex of buildings, that would have been run. There would have been a monk in charge of it, but the tannery would have been in operation largely under the command of servants. So you can go there, think about those roles, but just wander around any bit of a monastery and you will be walking in the footsteps of servants and go to some of our site museums. Revo, again, is another example. There's the tools there. And some of them may well have been used by uh, monks in who were master craftsmen, preparing manuscripts, but they could equally have been used by servants doing the activities, supporting the economy of the Abbey, the day-to-day tasks without which it couldn't have operated. It's the kind of inevitable human response when you visit a historic site and you wonder what was life, life like there. And we often place ourselves, don't we, in the role of the elites who occupied a space. But I think let's spare a thought and let's think about the lives of the servants without whom those monasteries couldn't have operated and who deserve their place in history. And so, so, so much more can be said about them. I think there's the scope here for an enormous research project and a book, if not books. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll look at the curious connections between Christmas and the Roman celebration of Saturnalia. Some will say this is Sol Invictus, some will say it's Jesus, some will say, oh, we don't know, it could be a transition. And it's quite nice sometimes, isn't it, having those pieces that still raise questions and get you to think about these really complicated aspects of life that we'll never really understand, but it's nice to get a glimpse. Thanks for listening. See you next time.